everyone. Welcome to the Physio Podcast. My name is Anashi, and I will be walking you all through some important aspects of our nervous system today. The topics we will be discussing in today's episode include membrane potentials, the GHK and Nertz equations, conduction of action potentials and myelination, graded potentials versus action potentials, the anatomy and physiology of synapses and synaptic integration, learning and memory, and frequency coding. The information contained in this podcast comes from Dr. Meyer in her lectures titled Bio3200 MLO2-121 and Bio3200 MLO3-128. Let's first get started with membrane potentials. Membrane potential is the voltage of the membrane and it changes to move in the direction of an ion's equilibrium potential when the permeability to that ion increases, as shown by slide 93 of MLO2-121. For example, if permeability to sodium increases, we would see that the membrane potential moved towards sodium's equilibrium potential of plus 60 MV. According to Dr. Meyer on slides 94 to 95 of MLO2-121, this permeability of the ion can also affect inward and outward currents, as an inward current would mean that an ion is flowing into the cell, like our previous example with sodium, while an outward current would mean the opposite like potassium flowing out of the cell. Membrane potentials can be described with the GHK equation that we will be talking about in just a bit. Another important aspect of membrane potentials is the idea that they guide how electrical signals and action potentials occur because without depolarization of a membrane that is enough to pass a threshold, an action potential will not occur. So the depolarization due to sodium channels is extremely important in how we talk to our body. Now, I want to touch on the GHK and NERST equations. First, using information from slide 82 of MLO2-121, we can see that the NERST equation tells us the equilibrium potential of an ion given the concentrations of that ion inside and outside of the cell, and this is our way of relating chemical concentration to electrical force. The GHK equation tells us the membrane potential, or voltage, of the cell using the respective permeabilities of ions and their respective concentrations inside and outside of the cell, as we can see on slide 91 of the same lecture. These equations essentially provide in numbers how equilibrium potential, concentrations, membrane potentials, and permeability work together. Now, let's break it down with a question for you to answer. A membrane's permeability to chloride ions increases. Would chloride ions flow in or out of the cell? Would the membrane potential increase or decrease? Do we call this hyperpolarization or depolarization? Is this an example of outward or inward current? Feel free to pause the podcast to have a few moments to think. Have an answer? Well, if permeability to chloride ions increases, then more chloride ions would flow into the cell which we'd call inward current, bringing with them their negative charge. This will thus cause hyperpolarization of the membrane because our membrane potential is becoming more negative, or simply put, decreasing. Now, I know that was quite a loaded answer, but these questions tend to build off of each other, so if we can remember the basic patterns of in or out, or hyperpolarize or depolarize, we will be on our way. How about we switch it up and talk all about neurons, action potentials, and myelination? One important concept I want to talk about is the idea of excitability with action potentials as it relates to its overall propagation. According to Dr. Meyer, 
When sodium ion channels are closed, we start off with high excitability because this means that the channels are able to open and fire an action potential. So we see high excitability right before an action potential. When we move into the absolute refractory period, the excitability is zero because if an action potential is occurring, we cannot add another one onto it as the channels are already open or there are not enough channels to fire another action potential. Once Na plus channels are resetting and the potassium channels are open during the relative refractory period, the excitability once again starts to increase as we are preparing for another possible action potential to fire as the sodium channels will be in the closed state. Also, we see that the permeability for sodium is highest at the peak of the action potential, while the permeability for potassium is highest during the repolarization phase. Got a clearer understanding now? To get a better idea of this concept, check out the image on slide 12 from Dr. Meyer's slideshow titled Bio3200 MLO3128, as this is the image where I learned this information from. You know what time it is now. Let's break it down with another question. Which channels are open during the repolarization? Depolarization? Have an answer? Well, no fear if you are still stuck. According to the image from Meyer on slide 12 of Bio3200 MLO3128, we can see that during depolarization, sodium channels are opening, while during repolarization, these channels are inactivating, while potassium channels are opening. I think now is a good time to talk about the conduction of the action potential as a whole. The overall conduction can be described by this memory peg I created. Tigger vows to never let me drive in reverse, which should help you remember that action potentials do not work in reverse or backflow. T stands for graded potential spreading to the trigger zone. V represents the voltage gated sodium channels allowing sodium to flow in. L stands for local currents flowing to the next patch of the membrane, D stands for depolarization of these adjacent patches, and R stands for the refractory period, preventing black flow of conduction. Hope that helps you visualize how the flow or conduction of the signal is impacted by all these various steps. If you need a refresher, check out slides 36 to 40 of MLO3-128 for more information on the concepts I just talked about. Now, to finish off our discussion of action potentials, I want to talk about myelination. The myelination of axons helps action potentials conduct faster while using less energy. Seems amazing, right? You may now be wondering, how do they do this? Well, let's try to see if we can figure it out. The overall increase in conduction is a result of many characteristics of the myelin sheaths and the nodes of Ranvier. First, the myelin sheaths serve as a barrier that prevent graded potentials from leaking out of the cell, allowing them to continue spreading further along the axon, according to Dr. Meyer. Next, the nodes of Ranvier are the spaces between the myelin sheaths of an axon, and here is where the voltage-gated sodium channels are, depicted by the image on slide 52 of MLO3. Thus, the nodes of Ranvier help the neuron achieve a constant, lasting amplitude of the action potential. Essentially, the nodes of Ranvier and the myelin sheaths work together to increase the speed of an action potential, and for this reason, they must be distanced not too close or too far away, or else this may cause failure of the action potential to propagate, and it may also slow the action potential. Keeping up with me so far? Perfect. 
You may have thought we were done talking about action potentials, but let's stop to think about how these action potentials compare to graded potentials in this next segment of our podcast. Firstly, graded potentials do not require ion channels to passively spread in the cell. Amplitude of the graded potential decreases with an increasing distance away from the stimulus. Action potentials, on the other hand, propagate in one direction, require constant amplitude, and also require sodium channels at the nodes in order to achieve this constant amplitude, according to slide 47 of MLO3. Seems pretty simple, right? Make sure to understand these key differences as concepts of graded potentials and action potentials may be used in conjunction. We are zooming right along. We are going to move on to the anatomy and physiology of synapses along with synaptic integration. First, the synaptic cleft is a narrow space between a presynaptic neuron and the postsynaptic neuron, aka the neuron that receives information to continue the propagation of a signal. Synaptic integration requires the opening of calcium channels in the terminal of the presynaptic neuron, thus causing the release of neurotransmitters, a type of chemical ligand from synaptic vesicles that fuse with the membrane, as depicted by the image on slide 58 of MLO3. Next, these neurotransmitters bind to their specific receptors on the postsynaptic membrane in order to cause a depolarization or hyperpolarization of the postsynaptic neuron, kind of like ringing a doorbell and causing a response from those that live there to come and check who's at the door. Keep in mind though that there are a few types of neurotransmitters. Excitatory neurotransmitters like acetylcholine or glutamate will cause a depolarization, while inhibitory ones like glycine and GABA will cause hyperpolarization, as stated by Dr. Meyer. Let's have a quick break it down segment to see if you're following along. Now, knowing that GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, would this neurotransmitter increase or decrease the permeability to chloride ions? Correct, it would increase the permeability to chloride ions, therefore causing a hyperpolarization to occur in the cell. Now we can move on to synaptic integration. Synaptic integration is essentially propagating an action potential in the postsynaptic neuron. I specifically want to talk about convergent integration because this is a concept that we will dive into more deeply when we start chapter 10. Convergent integration is a concept that can be summarized by this following scenario. Imagine you are playing a game of tug of war. Imagine you have teams in which each person has equivalent strength to someone on the opposite team. Now imagine that to team A, we had a very strong person who can help to pull the rope away from team B. Now we add another person to team A, which brings the strength of team A over the edge and helps team A to pull the rope past the central line and defeat team B. The addition of the two other teammates added extra strength or power to team A, similar to how multiple excitatory presynaptic neurons acting on a single postsynaptic cell can help this neuron surpass threshold level and propagate an action potential, aka winning the tug of war. This would be an example of additive summation, in which the multiple neurons are working together in order to cause an action potential to occur in a secondary neuron. The next topic we will talk about is an extension of synaptic integration, but is very important to talk about in depth. On a neuron's membrane, NMD receptors can be found and when open, these receptors can cause a release of CA2 into the neuron, which can activate other second messenger pathways that are vital for signal transduction, as seen on slide 89 of MLO3. 
These NMDA receptors only open, though, when glutamate is present and when depolarization of the membrane is occurring, according to Dr. Meyer. This depolarization can be the result of other synapses nearby that are active or by an AMPA receptor on the same membrane, which is open and releasing sodium. NMDA receptors play a role in associative memory because when two neurons are fired at the same time, this will strengthen the synapse and AMPA receptors can consequently be inserted into the postsynaptic neuron's membrane in order to further strengthen the synapse. Okay, so let's break this concept down a little more. Say we had a postsynaptic neuron and on its membrane there are no AMPA receptors, but there are NMDA receptors. If there were neighboring synapses that were active, would calcium flow through the postsynaptic cell, assuming that glutamate was present in the synapse? Have an answer? Great! Calcium would flow through this neuron because the depolarization from other synapses makes it possible to depolarize our neuron's membrane and allow the NMDA receptor to open and calcium to flow through. NMDA receptors in conjunction with AMPA receptors are vital to the learning and memory that we have in our neurons and in our cells as a whole. Still with me? Perfect, because we are on our last topic for the day, frequency coding. Frequency coding of action potentials essentially describes the idea that with weaker stimuli, the time for the action potential to occur, or for the greater potential at the trigger zone to achieve threshold level, is delayed and takes longer to occur, which results in a lower amount of neurotransmitter release. On the other hand, stronger stimuli result in a greater amount of action potentials because the threshold is reached faster due to a larger graded potential, therefore resulting in a greater amount of neurotransmitter release. These concepts can be explained further through the images on side 97 of MLO3. Before I leave you for the day, I want you to remember this memory peg. The stronger I am, the more I can act. This simply explains the concept that with stronger stimuli, we can fire more action potentials. That's it for today, everyone. Thank you for joining me, and I hope to see you next time on the Physio Podcast. Again, the information contained in this podcast comes from Meyer, Bio3200 MLO2-121, and Meyer, Bio3200 MLO3-128. See ya!